0: Just love like Jesus. That's a good statement, isn't it? Just love like Jesus. I wish I could say that that statement was associated with what followed recently, that heading, in the Chattanooga Times Free Press. But what followed that heading, Just Love Like Jesus, On the editorial page, March 31st of the Chattanooga Times Free Press was heartbreaking, disturbing, beyond words, really. And indicative, tragically, of the kind of misunderstanding and misapplication of Scripture that occurs far too often in the world in which we live today. Here's most of what followed that heading on the editorial page from a reader who wrote, for those of you who are so sure you understand the Bible and know what it says, I hope you can understand this scripture from James as well. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? Now, I don't call that scripture because that is so foreign to an accurate translation of James four, eleven, and 12. It's a one-man translation called the message, which is not an accurate translation of the word of God. But that's a study for a different time, I suppose. But it does remind us of how important it is to have a standard translation of the Word of God in your possession so that you can know that you're studying the Word of God and not one man's opinion or paraphrase of it or even a few men's dynamic equivalent of what I want to be a literal translation of the Word of God and what we do have in translations like the King James and the New King James versions of the Bible. But a man named Peterson gave us the message from which this reader quotes. And then the reader continues, When you are so sure homosexuality is wrong, you are telling God he made a mistake. Could it be possible we don't even understand why this kind of sexuality might be needed? However, God does as he made them. Do we know the mind of God? Do we want to be pointing out rules like the Pharisees did? Or do we want to love like Jesus did? I want you to remember those last three questions particularly because they will basically become the focus of what we say in the remainder of this lesson. Do we know the mind of God? Of course, in this reader's mind, that is a rhetorical question. And the conclusion this reader would reach is, no, we do not know the mind of God. And then the reader asks, do we want to be pointing out rules like the Pharisees did? That's an important question. And then finally, or do we want to love like Jesus did? This brings us to another in the series of passages people pervert. This is the third in the series where we're looking occasionally, not in sequence, but occasionally we're dealing with passages of Scripture that tragically people misapply and pervert and twist. Yes, tragically, unless they change, they twist them to their own destruction. And the key text is Second Peter three, fifteen and sixteen. Remember, Peter wrote, And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Now remember and keep in mind that indeed there must be one way in which to understand the word of God. Otherwise, Peter could never bring up the subject of those who are untaught and unstable who twist to their own destruction the proper understanding of the word of God which clearly denies the possibility that you can believe what you want to believe and that I can believe what I want to believe or that you can interpret the Scripture the way you want to interpret it and I can interpret the way I want to. If that were true, Peter never should have penned these words and yet he penned them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he clearly affirms that we can know whether or not homosexuality is a sin. We can know that we're loving like Jesus loved. We can know that we are saved. We can know that we know. Because the word of God furnishes us with that information. Now let's look at a proper translation of the key text under consideration, and that's James four eleven and 12. I like this translation much better than the message. Do not speak evil of one another brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? That scripture properly understood in context and in the immediate and larger context of the New Testament, makes it abundantly clear that pointing out sin that is clearly described in Scripture in no way violates this passage. In no way does it violate this passage. As you well know, if you're familiar with the epistle of James, that he deals to a great extent with the misuse of the tongue and the improper use of the tongue. And the tongue is indeed something that we have to guard constantly and bring it into harmony with God's will and keep constant watch on it because it can lash out at an unguarded moment. James makes that abundantly clear. And when he admonishes against speaking evil of one another, He obviously is admonishing against the wrong kind of criticism, the unjust and harsh criticism, the criticism that would impugn a person's motive, that would seek to know what a person is thinking. When we cannot know what a person is thinking, we're to judge by fruits. But the point is, we are to judge. And we'll show that clearly in this lesson from the New Testament. And so it's a perversion to say that all judging of any kind is clearly prohibited here by the inspired writer James. What James is saying is when you speak evil of a brother unjustly, when you criticize his motives, when you claim that you can know what he is thinking, or when you have formed an opinion about something that is contrary to, to Scripture and that brother is still living contrary to the Scripture and not living according to your opinion and you criticize him because he's not going along with your opinion versus the Word of God, that's unjust criticism as well. There are those who bind what God hasn't bound and seek to bind it upon others and sharply criticize those who don't go along with them. That would be unjust criticism. That would be judging improperly. In fact, he says, when you judge someone on some basis other than the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are actually judging this book. Because you're saying, I know better than the law of Christ. I know better than this book, and I'm judging you based upon what I believe to be the case. And if it's contrary to this book, you're not only wrongfully judging your brother, you are standing in judgment of the law, and in effect saying... I don't care what this says. I know what I believe, and you're in violation of what I believe. Therefore, I'm judging you. You've become a judge of the law by saying, in effect, it doesn't really apply to me, or I don't view it the way it actually teaches. There is one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. And when he asks, who are you to judge another? It obviously has to be understood. That question does in the context that we've just described, of improperly judging. Now let's go to another text that harmonizes with this and is very pertinent and is quite often perverted as well. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is speaking here as a part of the great Sermon on the Mount. And here, in perfect harmony with what we've just looked at in James four eleven and 12, He says this Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In the first place, improper judgment of others sometimes comes back on you, even in this life. And you'll get what you give out many times. And when you give out that which is contrary to the will of God, many times you're going to get it back even in this life. But it is certainly true that ultimately if you improperly judge people in contrary, uh, that in a contrary way to this book and the teaching of this book, ultimately you'll be judged by the ultimate judge of all mankind. But again, is Jesus here condemning all judgment of all kind at all times? No, no more than was James in James 4, 11, and 12. Look at the larger context of Matthew 7. And look at verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Now, notice further. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? We understand what he's talking about, but if we didn't, he tells us in the next word, hypocrite. You're a hypocrite, because you've got... Serious problems of your own, and yet you're trying to solve someone else's problems. That's hypocritical. Now notice carefully what he next says. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then forget about the speck from your brother's eye. Is that what that says? No. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That is absolutely crucial to this discussion of judging and properly understanding the scripture as it teaches us on matters of judging. We're not to harshly or unfairly judge. We're not to be hypocritical in our judgment But judgment of every kind is not prohibited. It couldn't be. Otherwise, Jesus missed it. Himself, the Lord Himself, when He said, Remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, you need to be concerned about your brother. But you need to approach him fairly and scripturally, And yes, exercise proper judgment. In fact, Luke 17.3, remember what Luke 17.3 says, if your brother sins against you, forget it. No, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Does that involve any kind of judgment? Of course it does. But stay right here in this text and look at verse 6 and see if this verse involves any kind of judgment. On our part. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn you, and turn and tear you in pieces. Let me ask you this. Does it involve the exercising of any kind of judgment for us to determine whether or not we are casting our pearls before swine or giving that which is holy to the dogs? Do I have to make a determination about that? Do I have to make a judgment about that as I'm dealing with other people? Absolutely. So when Jesus says, don't give what is holy to the dogs, I've got to determine who the dogs are. When he says, don't cast your pearls before swine, I have to determine who the swine are. That is, those who will abuse rather than accept the word of God. And at some point in time, I have to turn away from that effort, shake the dust off my feet, and move on to more fertile ground. Jesus tells me to do that. In order to exercise that, to carry it out, I have to make a judgment. There's no way around it. But if you had any doubt about the matter, look at what he says. Jesus, that is, in John 7 and verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Well, there it is. That statement is completely consistent with everything we have said thus far about James 4, 11 and 12. And Matthew 7, 1 through 6. But it is in total contrast to what this editorial is trying to get us to do. It's in total contrast with this. And we'll see more of that as we continue. Now, to the three key questions that were asked by this reader. In this heartbreaking, and truly it is, Heartbreaking treatise. That question first is, do we know the mind of God? And as the reader suggests in the question, it's obvious that in the reader's mind, the answer to this question is no. You can't condemn homosexuality, which is the context of this piece. You you don't know the mind of God. Yes, I do. Yes, I do know the mind of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Paul continues to write, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The idea of comparing spiritual ideas with spiritual words. What we have just read from 1 Corinthians two, eleven through 13 is a description of the process by which we know the mind of God. We know it through the revealed word. What God has revealed through his word, we can know and must know. What he has chosen not to reveal, we cannot know. But what we do know is he has revealed everything we need to know and he has held nothing back. Therefore, when it comes to the decisions that I make in my own life or that I try to influence you to make by helping you to follow the will of God, I can know the mind of God in those matters. And so, in contrast to what the reader obviously means by the question, do we know the mind of God? And in the reader's mind, the answer would be no. The answer is an absolute Yes, God has revealed it. Remember John chapters 14, 15, and 16 to the apostles. He said in those chapters like John uh, 14 and 15 and in 16, he talked about the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving you, Jesus said, but when I leave you, I'm not going to leave you without a comforter, without a helper. The Holy Spirit is going to come and do what? guide you into all truth. And he did that, and we have it here. It's the mind of God. Now, I can tell you the message from which we read that the reader quoted, that's not the mind of God, because that's the mind of, I believe his first name is Eugene Peterson. And however sincere he was in so called translating this i don't want my bible to read like the newspaper in fact the newspaper doesn't read like this don't bad mouth each other friends it's god's word his message his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk you're supposed to be honoring the message not writing graffiti all over it god is in charge of deciding human destiny who do you think you are to meddle in the de- in the destiny of others. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? I have an obligation to meddle in the destiny of others. When he talks about the destiny of others, he's talking about their eternal destiny. And in effect, through his so called translation, telling me I have no right to meddle in their destiny. Jesus tells me to meddle in their destiny. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. If your brother sins, going back to Luke 17, 3, if your brother who has become your brother, if he sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Get involved in his destiny. That's what Jesus demands of me as his follower. And yet, by this so-called translation, I could never get that out of it. But in proper translation, and with a fairness toward scripture in my approach to its study, I can get what God revealed to me about it and what he wanted me to know about it. I can know the mind of God. But then the other question that was asked by the reader, do we want to be pointing out rules like the Pharisees did? And I will answer no to that one. I don't want to be pointing out rules like the Pharisees did, not all the rules. They were pointing out some rules under the law of Moses that were valid, but they had added so much to it by their own tradition. So if the reader means those rules the Pharisees added to the law that were contrary to the law, I don't want to be pointing out those rules. And Jesus made that abundantly clear himself, didn't he? In Matthew 15, 7 through 9, hypocrites... He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees here. Hypocrites, he's talking about uh, the traditions that they, had, um, that they had added to God's law, the law of Moses. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now listen to this. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. To worship in vain is to teach for doctrine the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. So no, I don't want to be pointing out the rules like the Pharisees did on many occasions, rules that they had made up that contradicted the word of God because Jesus said to do that is to worship in vain. So I do not want to do that. But what about the final question? Or do we want to love like Jesus did? And you well know from what we read from this editorial that the reader means to love like Jesus did is to endorse, in this case, homosexuality. And how many other things would have to be endorsed on the basis of not judging as this reader defines not judging? I'm not sure you could condemn anything or anyone. Because in the reader's mind, to love like Jesus did Means you don't condemn. You love like he did. Let me show you how Jesus loved and how he loves even to this moment in time. In the Revelation letter at chapter 3 and verse 19, Jesus gave these words to the Apostle John As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous. And repent. That's loving like Jesus did. Jesus told us specifically how he loves. As many as I what? Love, I what? Excuse and forget about their sins. I rebuke and chasten. How much clearer could that be? Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then in John 14:15, "If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments." What are his commandments? They are those that are recorded by the Holy Spirit, who inspired the inspired writers to write them, words that he spoke, but they're also the words of the apostles who were guided into all truth, as we've already said, John chapters 14, 15, and 16 made that abundantly clear. What did one of those apostles say about this very subject with which the reader deals, as well as other subjects? In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it could not be any clearer. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says something that clearly contradicts the contention that God made these people the way they are. And to say otherwise means we accuse God of making a mistake. That's totally false. Because Paul says, but you were washed. If you were made that way, how could you ever be anything different? But some to whom he wrote had been homosexuals or one of these other, in one of these other situations, engulfed in sin of some kind, but they what? They repented. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so, to all those in this category, or these categories, or involved in any other sin, which is transgression of the New Testament, the Lord would say, repent or perish. In fact, he did in Luke thirteen three. Oh yes, belief is essential. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am He you will die in your sins. But repentance is essential. Changing, repent or perish, Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5. Confess me before men and I will confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And yes, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. That's what we must do. Otherwise, we'll never inherit the eternal face of the kingdom of God. And the judgment is coming when the Son of Man comes in His glory. And all the holy angels with Him. Then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And what will be the standard of judgment? What someone who writes to the Chattanooga Times Free Press thinks... It means to love like Jesus or what Jesus tells us it means to love like he did. What will be the standard? Let Jesus tell you. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Where are you in relation to that word today? Have you believed in Jesus, repented of your sins, confessed him sweetly, and been buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins? To rise, to walk in newness of life, having been washed in the blood, about which we are to sing in just a moment. Because in that burial is the blood. It's not the water that remits sins. It's the blood. But God has chosen to place the blood in the water. And therefore, I must by faith submit to that burial in order to reach that blood. It's that clear. And I rise to walk in newness of life. Are you still walking in that newness of life? Understanding that the standard of judgment is going to be this word. If you haven't continued that walk as a child of God and need to come home, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing. Will you come?